from WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. On today's show, we're digging into the mold crisis at the Wilmington Housing Authority. The mismanagement of this problem has left 78 families displaced from their homes. And while WHA hasn't been able to produce exact costs, the issue is only going to get more expensive. We started looking into the issue earlier this year when we received several tips about mold problems in Creekwood and Hillcrest, two of WHA's properties. But residents were understandably hesitant to talk to us. There was some distrust of journalism, of course, especially in neighborhoods where journalists don't often show up. But there were also some concerns about speaking up for fear of losing their housing. Then Katrina Redman abruptly resigned as CEO of the Housing Authority, and rumors started to spread that WHA was coming apart at the seams. So we filed public records requests for internal emails. At the same time, our colleague Kevin Maurer started doing some on-the-ground reporting, talking to residents. We'll hear from Kevin about that work later in the show, but suffice to say, it became clear that the chaos at WHA had its roots in deferred maintenance, especially because of mold. Over the next two months, we sifted through documents, interviewed WHA officials, and sat down with displaced residents and their families. The picture that developed wasn't pretty. We still don't know exactly what happened at WHA that turned mold, a common problem in the coastal south, into an out-and-out disaster. But we've got a pretty good idea where it started, how it grew out of control, and who ultimately was responsible. The questions now are, will anyone be held accountable? And what comes next? And we'll get into all of that on today's show. But first up, Kelly digs into the costs, financial and human, of WHA's painfully slow reaction to the mold problem. Seventy-eight families are currently living in hotels or corporate apartments while they wait for their homes to be cleaned of mold. Some of them have been there for months. They come from numerous housing projects, Houston Moore, Creekwood, and Woodbridge, among others. And they've been stuck living in hotels far from their communities, wherever WHA can stash them. Likewise, their worldly belongings have been stuffed into pods without climate control or into storage facilities around the city. Sonia Muldrow has lived in a 1,200-square-foot, three-bedroom apartment in Creekwood for nine years. But for the past month, she's been living in a Holiday Inn on Market Street and worrying about when she might be able to live somewhere more stable. My mind is like racing. It's, it's just so much because it's messing with my mental health. You know what I'm saying? Because we don't know what's going on. We don't know whether we're going to be housed again. They're not telling us anything. Muldrow found out there were problems with mold in other apartments through the grapevine and asked for her own apartment to be tested. The day she moved in nine years ago, she noticed a discolored patch on the ceiling of one closet. But the housing authority only ever went after it with bleach. That's until earlier this year, when she officially asked the authority to test her apartment for mold. She showed WHQR emails that give a clear timeline. After getting her apartment tested for mold on April 12th, the testing company, Phoenix EnviroCorp, sent a mold report detailing the infestation to WHA on May 21st of this year. WHA didn't act on that information until October 14th, and then only gave her a day's notice to move out. Like this, I said, they called me on a Thursday and they wanted me packing Friday. Yeah, that quick. Now Muldrow visits her home to pack up her things, and it smells strongly of mildew. Black spots of mold intrude around her bathtub, and even the tile flooring is marred by orange stripes of mold. That's, she said, that's mold. And I'm scrubbing and I'm scrubbing and I'm thinking it's because it's dirty or whatever, but it never comes up, so. 
Each week, Muldrow is given a check for $427 as a stipend for staying in the hotel. She's waiting there until the mold can be permanently remediated by a contractor. WHA board chair Al Sharp says it costs an average of $27,000 to remediate an apartment, running the gamut from $8,000 for smaller units with limited issues to over $100,000 for a total renovation of a four-bedroom apartment. As for the ongoing cost of housing residents and hotels... We had an estimate that it was uh, roughly $100,000 a month, okay, for all of the Mm -hmm. units, all of the expenses, Mm -hmm. all all of the things. This this does not conclude reconstruction amounts. They're separate contracts. WHA has only provided the total number of displaced families, not individuals. But nearly 80 families could mean hundreds of people who are living cramped in hotel rooms in the midst of a pandemic for months and months and months. WHQR spoke to one family with a mother and four children in a two-bedroom hotel room. So we had to ask, is WHA moving quickly to fix this problem? The answer to that is no. There's still no plan to test for mold in every apartment under WHA's care, despite how pervasive the problem is. Despite officially knowing about the mold infestations for nearly a year, WHA has only hired one company to work on remediation. But that one company can't keep up, and WHA hasn't hired any additional contractors to help keep pace and get residents back in their homes. Here's Al Sharp. And when they uh, were not able to keep pace, um, then about last month, we have been trying to effectively hire, through appropriate channels, other firms to uh, cut up the jobs and have them work simultaneously. But there still isn't anything posted about available bids on the WHA website. Sharp says a lot of contractors would rather not work for HUD, but WHQR called every remediation contractor WHA has worked with or received bids from in the past four years, and all who responded said they'd be happy to work with the organization again, but haven't heard anything about an offer. In the meantime, hundreds of residents like Sonia Muldrow are left waiting and wondering whether their apartments and possessions are safe. My my belongings and my possessions are at stake. Anybody could break in here. I'm at the hotel. I don't know. All of this has had a chilling effect on some residents who believe they have mold. Like my neighbor, who doesn't want to report mold because she's scared to be put out. Sonia Muldrow says a lot of her neighbors are afraid to complain about the mold. Some have family members staying with them who aren't on the lease. Others are disabled and fear being stuck in a hotel for long periods of time. Still others, already in hotels, are afraid to complain publicly in case they lose housing altogether. And while WHA says it would never retaliate, a lack of communication and a groundswell of frustration may actually be obscuring parts of the mold crisis the authority isn't even aware of yet. What's more, WHA still doesn't have a systemic method of testing apartments for mold spores, even when an apartment adjoins a moldy unit and shares an HVAC system. Residents have had to advocate for themselves to get their apartments tested. Here's Interim Director of WHA, Vernice Hamilton. Prior to this coming up, there was not a policy on testing for mold. You know, when it was brought to our attention that there were issues, then of course we had to react and react in a hurry to get the units tested. Because we are, you know, we do want to provide safe environments, a healthy environment for all of our residents. This has, um, this, this situation, lets us know that a lot of things that we need to do going forward that need to be put in place. There aren't currently any plans to test every apartment in WHA for mold. 
And though it seems obvious, it's worth pointing out that several remediation contractors confirmed that the longer you wait, the more mold spreads, and the more extensive and expensive it will be to fix the problem. Muldrow says she has no idea when she'll be able to move back into her apartment or whether she'll be moved somewhere else instead. WHA has suggested she might be moved to a different community, but she wants to go home to Creekwood, where she's worked hard to create a community garden in her yard. It might sound crazy. I'm addicted <laughs> to gardening, to the soil. I, I, I love the earth. She misses working in her garden every day and being able to cook using more than a crock pot in her hotel room's bathroom sink. But for Sonia, there's no end in sight and no clear information coming from the top. And she's just one of the 78 families stuck in hotels. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Schachman here with co-host Kelly Knoyer, breaking down the mold crisis that's gripping the Wilmington Housing Authority. After we looked at the overall problem and some of the costs, we turned to another part of the problem, what it actually means for families to move out of their homes with just a day's notice, and what happened to their homes and possessions after they left. Kimberly Lamberth watched as her sister Erica had to move with her four children and almost no notice. She didn't know until it was to the point where they pretty much had to be evacuated out. It was like an immediate move, like you guys are no longer able to go back inside. Other residents who spoke to WHQR told similar stories, complaints, long periods of time with no communication from WHA, and then what amounted to overnight instructions to move out into hotels around the city. While most tenants point to Hurricane Florence in 2018 as the origin of the mold issues, WHA said it didn't find out about the crisis until recently. Staff say they found out there were more serious problems in January of this year, while the authority board found out in June. Here's board chair Al Sharp. It just, it just got ahead of the Wilmington Housing Authority last winter, and we heard an anecdote that some uh, residents were aware there were issues but did not want to report it because they knew there was no place else to go. They were afraid of being um, uh, displaced. And so many they, they sort of sat on it. Uh, and then COVID came in, and it was like a pressure cooker. Some residents did hesitate, and it's still unknown how widespread the mold problem really is. But dozens of families have spoken up. And in some cases, it seems like it was WHA not the tenants who were slow to act. Erica Lamberth filed a formal complaint in the summer of 2019. An environmental testing firm detected mold in her kitchen and bathroom, but nothing was done, and Erica wasn't informed of the test results. It was only after a second investigation, performed nearly two years later, that WHA acted. And when they did, Erica barely had time to grab her clothes and children. Then, she spent the spring and summer months moving from hotel to hotel. Kimberly Lamberth saw the toll this took on her sister. WHQR interviewed Kimberly at her home, and you can sometimes hear her dog, Precious, in the background. She was really tired of being in the hotel. I want to say a holiday came up, might have been Memorial's Day or something, and she had to move because the hotel needed those rooms. So you're trying to hold a stable job, but how can you whenever 
at the drop of a dime, you have to be available to move. That's what they're telling you. Nearly 80 families, hundreds of people, are still living in the same situation. Nearly a year after WHA started moving residents out, some of the first apartments tested are still vacant. The residents are still stuck in hotel rooms. For some, their possessions, furniture, photographs, blankets, clothing, everything that makes an apartment into a home, have been moldering in moving pods, portable storage containers that lack any kind of climate control. About a dozen of the containers dot the front yards of Creekwood. And since those pods were filled from moldy apartments, the possessions sitting in the summer heat became incubators for mold spores. According to Interim Director Bernice Hamilton, it was never WHA's intention to cause that kind of harm. The pods that you see, that was the first option that staff used was the pods to put residents' belongings in. What we found out, that wasn't the best thing to do. So going forward, what we're doing is we're having to get contracts with storage units that have climate control and that's what we're doing to put, that's, we're putting residents' belongings there. But those first residents are still stuck. Since the pods are still under contract, that's where the family's possessions have remained. Kimberly Lamberth saw the damage to her sister's belongings firsthand. During this time, it was summer, so um, pillows that were not properly stored were just pretty much tossed in there, and you could see the mold on that. You could see the mold on her furniture, her couch, and her love seat. You could see it on, on it. So at that point, you're just like, you don't want to touch anything, you know? Representatives of WHA say the mold problem won't get away from them in the future. After the pandemic, the authority says it will go back to its regular biannual inspections on units and hopefully will catch these problems before they become a crisis again. It's unclear yet whether those inspections will now include official mold tests. In the meantime, Hamilton has a message for residents stuck in hotels. More than anything else, we want to see them back in their homes with their families. More than anything else. I lose sleep at night, you know, thinking about it because I put myself in their position. How would I feel? You know, I, I get emotional when I talk about it because this is where, this is, the, this is their home. Hamilton has kind words to share, but for some residents and their families, it feels like WHA doesn't care at all. And for Erica Lamberth, it's too late. She was killed in August, struck by a car while walking home to her hotel. Her sister says had she lived, returning home to a storage container full of ruined belongings would have been devastating. So if she was still alive and was able to go back to her apartment and not being able to have any of her belongings, that probably would have killed her. You're up against all these obstacles constantly. She would have been hysterical as I would have, as anyone would, when that's all you have. Many WHA residents will have to face that very situation. For Kimberly, it's hard to know what to say to the dozens of families living in the wake of WHA's failures and mismanagement. Yeah, I don't know what to say when you're going up against a big organization like that, honestly. Compared to, you know, Wilmington Housing Authority, you feel small. Knowing that they have been aware, knowing they know what they know, but they're choosing to be blind to the situation, I personally feel defeated and I'm not living in the hotels. 
I'm not the one that's going through what they're going through. I think they are taking advantage of a vulnerable population. All this probably leaves you wondering who's responsible for all this and what can be done. And don't worry, we'll get into all of that. But first, after a quick break, we'll take a more intimate look at the people being displaced by WHA's mismanagement and a conversation with our colleague Kevin Maurer, who helped us tell those stories. You're listening to The Newsroom. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. And I'm Kelly Knoyer. One thing we wanted to do in this series and for this edition of The Newsroom was to highlight the actual people behind the stories we've been telling. Yeah, residents of public housing are an oft-maligned group, looked down on by other members of society. But that's not a reputation they deserve, and no one deserves to live in substandard housing that hurts their health. We wanted to look more closely at the actual lives of the residents we interviewed and share their stories with the listeners. We'll start with a piece that you reported, Kelly, about Erica Lamberth after you spoke with her family. And then we'll hear from two Creekwood residents who are currently displaced, Sonia Muldrew and Latorce Jones. Erica Lamberth was a prolific cook who cared deeply about her family. She lived in Woodbridge Apartments, one of the Wilmington Housing Authority's seven properties. She died in August from a car crash while crossing the street from work. And her sister Kimberly says it's been hard living without her. Yeah, that's what my daughter um, said a couple weeks ago. And I just can't eat corn anymore because nobody cooks corn like T.T. Erica's eldest daughter, Alexis Gower, says she loved to cook for her family. She used to cook chicken all the time, too. Um, Her chicken is really good. I know how to cook everything I learned from her, but um, seafood was definitely my favorite thing that she would do. Erica couldn't cook because she was living in a small hotel room without even a kitchenette before she died. Kimberly is still mourning her deeply. Oh my gosh, she was crazy, funny, love. Um, She was everything. Um, We have... Um, a younger sister, so it was me, her, um, and Erica growing up in the home. Um, she was just that big sister, you know, was able to pretty much like live through her. I'm like the one that's going to play it safe, and that's not her. If she's feeling away, she's going to let you know how she feels, very outspoken, outgoing. Everybody loved her. Alexis says her mom was a warm and loving person and her best friend. She cared about everybody and talked to everybody that she met. It doesn't matter who you are. She just liked to speak and like to acknowledge people's feelings. I try to be the same way now. She was a very good influence on me. They had a lot in common and would get their nails done together for quality time. Her mom also took a lot of pictures. She loved to take pictures of literally everything. It used to be annoying, but now I'm grateful for the pictures because I have so many. Erica's four kids are all living in Johnson County now with their fathers. Kimberly says they lost not only their mother, but their home and nearly all their possessions. That's the nightmare. When Erica had to leave her apartment, WHA paid contractors to pack up all her things into a pod, or a temporary outdoor storage container. They moved it after it was packed, and it sat in the summer heat for months. When the family finally got to open it up, after Erica's funeral, it was in complete disarray. TVs were broken and worse. As soon as you opened it up, you could see that there was mold on everything Um, to the point where, like, the kids had bunk beds. You could see at the bottom where mold was starting to creep up. 
um, her queen size bed, you could see that mold was starting to take over that. So the kids wasn't able to get anything. That loss was hard for Alexis. She wanted to wrap herself up in her mother's memories, but they were destroyed. Mostly, mostly just blankets and stuff. She had like a Scooby-Doo blanket that, like I used to have at my grandma's house and stuff. But she can remember her mother by the tattoos she had. I do tattoos and piercings on myself, um, kind of because of her, honestly. <laughs> she has um, 16 tattoos. I used to count them on her whenever I was, like, little. And I have more than that now, even though I'm, like, way younger than she was. But I um, do tattoos, and she was, like, once I started getting good, um, she told me I needed to tattoo her, but I just never got to. While the family will never forget Erica, Kimberly says it feels like WHA already has. I think for them, that was just pretty much like, okay, case closed. How does that make you feel? Mm, like they don't care, like they are, like they don't really support the individuals that they have living in these homes. Sonia Muldrew helped bring the issue at WHA to light, speaking out not just for herself, but for her neighbors in Creekwood. I really care about my community and a lot of them don't want to speak on these issues because they're scared they won't have anywhere to go. That's understandable, but I'm going to keep talking because people in these positions need to be held accountable. It's been going on too long. Sonia is a master gardener who runs a community garden bed in her backyard. She's also a home cook and cooking is deeply important to her, but she's lost that now that she's been forced to move into a hotel. It's expensive. I try, I have a, a crock pot and I took my air fryer. That's not gonna work. I need water, I need to wash dishes. I need to be clean. I need somewhere to prep the food before I do it, you know, and I can't do all that in a bathroom sink. <laughs> it's no way possible. Sonia says she wants to get back to cooking and gardening and being part of her community but like so many others, she remains at the mercy of WHA's remediation process. Also from Creekwood, Latorce Jones was moved out of her home in the spring. She'd just given birth to her son two months earlier. She was working on starting her own business and had plans to move out of the projects. Instead, she's in a cramped room in a hotel off of Market Street. Latorce sits on the bed. Her son, Quintel, now eight months, nurses a bottle next to her. When the interview starts, he's fussy, but he calms down when Latorche turns up Nickelodeon, first bubble guppies and then blues clues. Like the other displaced tenants, she's getting stipend checks, but says it's not worth it. Also, like other tenants, she's had to suffer the indignities of WHA's mismanagement. For just one example, the housing authority recently realized that the pods it was using to store people's belongings were acting as mold incubators. So they started moving people's possessions, including Latorsha's, into storage facilities. WHA contacted her and gave her a key, but then couldn't tell her which storage facility it went to. How you giving me a key to something, but you don't even know where it is? Do that make sense? Like, really, do that make sense? Like, they make you feel like you slow or you, like, something's wrong with you. Ain't nothing wrong with me. I got good common sense. 
The room barely has 10 feet between the door and the bed. That's all the room that Quintel has to toddle around in. There's obviously nowhere to put a Christmas tree, nowhere to cook Thanksgiving dinner. That's a bitter pill to swallow. Latorche has always been a cook, and before being displaced, dreamt of going pro with a food truck or another food business. Like so many other displaced residents, cooking was a big part of what made her home, home. Now, there's just a narrow counter around the sink in her room, barely space to wash baby bottles. Quintel's first holiday season is going to be tough, but Latorche can somehow see past it to something better. It's the first and last. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. We're talking about the Wilmington Housing Authority. WHQR just wrapped up a five-part series on serious issues at the authority, and there's probably a lot more reporting down the road left to do. A big part of that reporting, even though you didn't hear his voice on the air, was our colleague Kevin Maurer. He did a lot of the boots-on-ground reporting at the beginning of this project, so we wanted to bring him in for his perspective on the story. All right, now my guest is Kevin Maurer. Kevin, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So tell me about when you first heard about mold issues at the Wilmington Housing Authority. Uh, it must have been last year during the pandemic. You know, I was out in the, the community quite a bit, and uh, it was just a pressing issue that a lot of people were bringing to my attention. I was looking to, for a place to tell the story, which is how we, we found our, our way together on this one. So you've, you've spoken with you know, a number of families that were impacted by this, uh, families living in hotels. The first person we talked about was the the story of uh, Erica Lamberth. And you talked to her sister. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I mean, you know, I, th- I think we all remember uh, when her sister was, was killed on Market Street in a, in a car accident. And y- at first you just, you kind of write it off as an accident. But the more we dug into it, and then I was, I was kind of tipped off that, you know, she was living in a hotel and that she was out of her place because of mold. You know, we started to kind of put the put the pieces together, and it's just a tragedy. It's it's one of these tragedies that you know you get with with a kind of these kind of these big stories where, you know, the mold is become a systemic problem over there, and you know they're fighting, they're, you know, they're fighting a hard fight in that. You know, our climate leads to a lot of mold growth, but you know, it's it's a tragic story, and I but I really think it speaks to the the burden that's being placed on a lot of these residents um, that are being forced to leave their homes. Your reporting led us to, you know, do some follow-ups and, and talk to additional people. One of the things that kept coming up was, especially early on in WHA's attempt to deal with this, was people's property ending up in these pods. Right. So when when they when they would come to remediate your apartment, they would take all your belongings and put them in a pod for storage while the the workers went in there and, and fixed the apartment. Um, and the problem though was that it was in the summer. And a lot of these these this this furniture had mold spores on it, so it became really a petri dish where this mold grew because it was kind of a perfect place for it, perfect conditions. Uh, and and then the problem is that uh, the the burden of replacing those household goods falls on the resident, uh, and most of these residents don't have renter's insurance. So a lot of that more financial burden than, you know, not only are you displaced, um, but you're also most of your household now is unusable, and you're going to have to replace all that. You know, we talked to one family who said they estimated, you know, it was around $8,000. And obviously that would depreciate, um, but around $8,000 of stuff that they would have to pay to replace. Uh, and, of course, for, for people who don't know, we're talking about pods are those, like, half-length shipping container-looking things uh, that you use for cross-country moves. And this was – WHA admitted later that this was kind of a bad idea, and they shifted over to um, climate-controlled storage. But for at least a dozen people that we talked to, between, you know, the three of us, you, me, and Kelly Knoyer – 
Uh, and driving around Creekwood, we saw at least a dozen pods. So that was that was, that was a bad scenario. I mean, it was a, it was a bit of a stopgap. I mean, to, to WHA's um, defense, a little bit in that you know they had this massive problem. They had to get these goods out so they could do the remediation work finally. And so, you know, as a stopgap, it's one thing. Uh, but I think that you know it's one of those where. As you hurry to try to keep up with with this overflow of, of uh, you know, I better get an avalanche of of, of, how, of claims around mold, uh, you know, you start you know, the system isn't in place that then handles these things, and I, and I think this is just a, a you know a side a side effect of of kind of this bigger issue. An issue that came up over and over again was they do get stipends, uh, the people who were displaced, but that basically that effectively means living on fast food. Well, I mean, imagine, you know, folks, when you go on vacation, you know, living in a hotel is inconvenient and you're there to have fun. And so imagine now living four or five months in a hotel room. You don't have a kitchen. You don't have a refrigerator. You don't have your own laundry facilities. And there's just no way to build that home. And I, and I think something that a lot of people overlook when they talk about the Wilmington Housing Authority is these are people's homes. This is their community. And they're not living at home, and they're not. They're now living away from their neighborhood. You know, I know. I know for a fact some of the families we talked to, their kids had to switch schools because of this. And so, if you think about all that stress that you add to just daily life, you know, it, it's going to compound. So, uh, the money is great, and the money that they're able to get to, to to supplement their food is is one thing, but it doesn't make up for all of the things on top of that, starting with being displaced from your home. One of the women you spoke with uh, and then later connected us with, Latorsh Jones, um, she's raising an infant, now, now a toddler, in a, in a hotel room. You know, I wonder if people can even imagine what that's like. Well, no, I mean, uh, imagine, you know, she had a, she had a you know, she, she was pregnant, they tested her apartment, and then they found out, she came back after she had the child, and then she found out that they were living in an apartment with a lot of mold, so she moved to a hotel. And this child now has grown up basically in this hotel. Uh, it went from, you know, a, a child to now a toddler that's moving around a little bit. Uh, but imagine living in a hotel room with two beds. And, you know, you're, you know, most kids that I know have go to bed pretty early. And so your day ends at that point. And then, you know, obviously you're in this hotel and there's all kinds of other folks in that hotel and there's lots of kids in the hotel. So, I mean, I, I just think it, again... Um, it's you're taking people away from their homes, and I and I think that you know they do the they can't stay there because it's not healthy, but it's still a, a, an added stress to not be at home and not have all the, the the creature comforts that you're used to. A big part of this seems to be obviously you you can't remediate until you know you need to remediate, and, and but there seems to have been uh, some pretty serious delays in the the process between. When a resident complained, when an environmental company came in and did the assessment, and then a, a separate remediation company came in, that that pipeline between I have mold in my apartment, you send somebody to, to test it, and then when that test comes back and we need to remediate, there seems to be massive leaks in that, and and we've we you know through our reporting we've shown, you know months to to over a year at one point. With one family, uh, Erica Lambert's family, she she asked for two two uh, tests, uh, and she, but the first one was right after Florence, and it was a year before anybody did more than a year before anybody did any work on her place. So, you know, there, there seems to be in, in the system as they were trying to tackle this problem, there seems to be gaps or leaks where where this paperwork wasn't wasn't efficiently processed, and then the residents weren't efficiently told they had issues and moved people out.
The last thing I want to ask you about is, you know, we spoke to more people than who were willing to go on the record. One of the concerns was not wanting to talk to journalists, not wanting to talk about what is a pretty embarrassing situation, you know, being put out of your house and living in a hotel. But another issue seemed to be concerns about WHA. I mean, concerns that if they spoke out, they wouldn't get back into their homes, concerns that they would get hassled, concerns that uh, for people who were still in their apartments, that the process would either be delayed or it would be kickstarted and they'd be immediately thrown out. Just a lot of trust issues and communication issues between residents and WHA. And I want to put you on the spot, but I am curious if you, you know, in your travels and your conversations heard that as well. I mean, I've, I've heard the same I've heard the same complaints. And, I, and I, you know, I've heard them around, you know, most landlords, honestly. You know, uh, and I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is for for folks, this is their home and, and they don't want to lose their home. This is their neighborhood. This is their community. This is their people. And so I think there's a fear of of losing that and losing everything that you that support structure and your life and, and not being able to displace from your life. And, and so I think it's a valid fear. I'm not aware of any sort of systemic WHA campaign around that, but I think that that would be anybody's fear if you didn't control and you didn't own your your house and you were at the whim of a landlord. You know, honestly, a lot of this comes back to, you know, the, the same issue we're having throughout this community, which is affordable housing and ownership of houses. And, and I think that when, you know, when we have a system, we have to really treat the residents in that system as, as you know, people who own their home. That is something we heard um, over and over again was this idea of, uh, despite of the fear uh, or the frustration or just the difficulty of the situation, the, the refrain was, where else can we go? And for people who don't understand, you know, these are these in many cases people are paying rent, just reduced rent, mm-hmm. um, and the gulf between what you can afford in Creekwood or Woodbridge or Hillcrest and the next cheapest apartment is just staggering. If you can even get into that apartment, right? I mean, if if it's even available, and if you have the the disposable income to put down the deposits you're going to need on top of the rent that's going to come. I mean, for a lot of these folks. You know, this is their only chance to have a roof over their head. And that that is, you know, that's the first thing you need as a human, right? Then you start to layer on the other things, you know, like we were talking about with community and, and such. But, you know, th- I think it's a valid fear that if you take that roof away from somebody, then, you know, they have nothing. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say about, about your reporting on this? I mean, I think it's an important story. And, I, and my, my hope is that, the, you know, this kind of reporting spurns some action. You know, I, I think that the you know, and, and maybe the, there's ways to shore up that that reporting pipeline, and maybe there's ways to to, to maybe this will open up some avenues, you know, better communication. I, I just I hope that this this reporting is taken in the spirit of, you know, putting a spotlight on problems and, and doing what journalism does best, which is just shows that there's an issue, and allows people to to act and fix it. And, and you know, I, I'd like to see. I hope that's where it goes, and it doesn't turn into something else. Yeah, I, I want to end on that, and I'm glad you brought it up because. I know that other people have tried to look into this issue, other journalists, and it's difficult um, for some of the reasons we pointed out. Uh, people, you know, sort of innate fear of talking to the press, um, the racial dynamics of a white reporter sometimes coming into a black neighborhood, all of these things sort of layered on top of each other. It's almost overdetermined. But, you know, for people who want to replicate this kind of journalism, maybe not even in Wilmington, but, you know, anywhere, I mean, what can you recommend for? you know, building trust as a reporter with, with a community? You know, I, th- I think it's something that, like, I think you, the reason why you and I uh, enjoy working one, with one another is that we like that shoe leather reporting, that you have to go out into the communities that you're going to write about and be in them, talk to people. And, and a lot of that work starts with 
not coming out to interview people, but just coming out to that community and asking questions and being curious and, and being authentic and don't promise anything and, and, and be respectful of other people's stories and their, and their lived experience and then being able to translate that into, you know, sometimes it's a great news feature. Sometimes it's stuff like this, which is, you know, pointing out an issue and, and, and sort of driving people to, to address it and change it. So. All right. Well, Kevin Mauer, freelance journalist and a major part of this project looking at issues with the Wilmington Housing Authority. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so now it comes down to the hard questions. Who's responsible for this situation and how will they be held accountable? And more importantly, for the residents of the Housing Authority, what can be done to fix the damage and how can it be prevented in the future? We'll get into all of that after a quick break. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Shockman. So, Kelly, I don't think we can go any further without talking about who's responsible here. We've got communication breakdown, failures of management, and a chaotic vacuum of leadership. It's a lot. So let's start at the beginning and lay this all out. Right. So we've heard from residents that the mold problems originated from Hurricane Florence in 2018. WHA's leadership said they found out about it earlier this year, but we've reviewed WHA documents that show pervasive mold problems in the Hillcrest development as early as 2019. Those were signed by the CEO at the time, Katrina Redman. And even outsiders to WHA heard about mold at Creekwood after Hurricane Florence in 2019. NAACP President Deborah Dix-Maxwell said she first heard about mold in Creekwood around that time. Right after Florence, I was contacted initially by someone about mold out there, and we um, contacted WHA at that time. Some staff certainly knew about general mold concerns for a long time, but perhaps didn't recognize it as an emergency until last winter. And we still don't know what the catalyst for that was because WHA has no system of cataloging complaints. So they say they didn't know, but there's evidence that they did. But we've heard that the board was ignorant for even longer. Right. Board Chair Al Sharp says they didn't find out until this summer. Apparently, leadership within the WHA hid the information from the board. A former WHA employee told us it was a common practice for former CEO Katrina Redman to only tell the board what she wanted them to know about. And in the interest of transparency here, one of WHQR's board members, Terry Everett, is also on the WHA board. We did speak to her, but she directed questions to Al Sharp. It must have come to a bit of a boiling point because some heads rolled this summer. Actually, the leadership of WHA was pretty much wiped out, first with a restructuring that removed two vice presidents, then from Katrina Redmond retiring in September, or resigning. We keep hearing different stories. In any case, that's why we have Vernice Hamilton, formerly the head of Human Resources, sitting at the helm. It's left a bit of an open question about accountability, as Deborah Dix-Maxwell said. Well, Ms. Redmond retired. Her COO and CFO left or quit two or three weeks before she retired. So we may not find out who's the responsible party since the top three who were in control at that time are no longer here. So to lay it all out, mold started being a problem in 2018 to 19 because of the hurricane. But despite inspections showing that problem, the CEO and other leadership didn't acknowledge the issue until last winter. And then they withheld the information from the board for six more months before they all resigned or retired. 
And now there's a serious power vacuum at the top of the organization in the midst of a very expensive and devastating crisis. Yeah, I don't know if we can put it more concisely than that. I just want to know what they'll do to prevent these problems in the future. We asked for some of that information when we interviewed Board Chair Al Sharp and Interim Director Vernice Hamilton, but they did not have any clear answers for us. We are working very much to provide oversight and operational cooperation between the Interim Director and, and the full staff. We had a meeting with our attorney a couple weeks ago and the full staff to make them fully aware of, of the conditions and what we're wrestling with. So, yeah, we're, we're aware of the oversight function. We're, we're aware of financial issues. We're aware of our obligation and mission to provide affordable, safe housing. And on all the things that we can control, we're doing the best we can. They couldn't point to any new systems they have developed to create transparency between the board and the staff. Right, and we know there's no clear lines of communication between residents and the admin. And I don't know that that's changing right now either. Yeah, WHA appears to have developed a culture of fear for its residents, while at the leadership level, everyone's either ignorant or apathetic to the tenant's plight. Yeah, one of the residents we interviewed, Sonia Muldrow, she confronted WHA's leadership at the resident advisory board meeting and ended up in a shouting match with board member Joan Johnson, who's a resident of Rankin Terrace. I'm tired of it. I'm just like you. I'm tired of it. I'm displaced out of my home. I'm having mental health issues. You, you in a hotel? Are you in a hotel? Do you, you should know. I don't know. That's you should? Uh-huh. That's I don't know if you don't call me That's Yeah, it was tense. Uh, Muldrew left the meeting to calm down, and Johnson told other WHA residents that they should file their grievances in a very particular way. There's a chain of command that you follow, and I don't think anyone that has ever called me or came to a meeting and told me there was a problem and you couldn't get help from housing authority, that I didn't go to the board and get the help for you. That's why we are here. Still, to be honest, Johnson didn't seem that interested in opening a discussion about mold at the meeting. In fact, the word mold never passed the lips of any of the WHA officials there. And when it came time for residents to bring up concerns... Any old business that you want to discuss, going once, going twice, go. So those historic communication problems don't seem like they're going away anytime soon. But what about the head honcho? Doesn't Mayor Bill Sappho have some control over the housing authority? Well, he does have the power to appoint the board. And while he acknowledged that he has a role, he really laid blame on WHA for this disaster. You know, I'm the mayor of the city. People come to me with problems all the time. And my job is to appoint the board. I expect the board to do their job, and I expect the board to hire good people, and if they see a problem, I need for them to fix it as quickly as possible. And if they see a problem that's persistent, that they need to come to me and talk to me about it also to keep me abreast of what the heck's going on. As I said, I've just really heard about this from Mrs. Muldrow. Muldrow is a resident of Creekwood who told us she notified the mayor on November 5th. That's how he found out, from a resident. And according to Sonia, he still hasn't called her back. It's really a Russian nesting doll of blame, you know? The mayor appointed a board and trusted it with oversight. The board appointed WHA leadership and trusted it to do a good job. And now that there's a public crisis, the leadership has pulled out, and those who should bear responsibility aren't there to clean up the mess. Here's Mayor Sappho again. I think that um, the resignation of um, Mrs. Redmond, I think, did put them into a tailspin. And a certain... um, a group of, of, of those folks that have worked at WHA that have left 
um, and you lose all of that knowledge and leadership at a, at a short time like they have had happen here, I think it's put them into a significant tailspin. And for what it's worth, we reached out to Katrina Redmond for a comment, but she didn't want to speak with us. Hello? Hi, is this Katrina? Uh, yes. Hi, Katrina. This is Ben Shockman from WHQR. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am good. I am calling because, uh, as you as you may know, uh, we are doing a series of articles on the Women's in Housing Authority, and we'd like to ask uh, for your perspective on a couple things. Well, uh, I really, uh, with my leaving, it's better that you direct those to the Housing Authority. I appreciate it. This whole story has been frustrating to cover in a lot of ways. Just seeing the residents living in such dire circumstances and hearing continually that we've only seen the tip of the iceberg. We actually just got this voicemail as we were recording this episode of The Newsroom, and I think it really encapsulates the level of anger and frustration that we've been hearing from residents. Um, Yes, ma'am. I'm a Wilmington Housing Authority resident. I have been in a hotel for seven months with three children. One of my sons has a learning disability. I've given WHA a letter from his school stating the concerns because he's failing every single grade since we've been displaced out of our home. We were told to pack clothes for a couple of weeks, which was in the summertime. Here it is wintertime. All of our clothes, winter clothes, coats, and everything is in the pod that we have no access to. Like I said, I have four kids sharing a room, seven months. My son started school. He wasn't able to get on the school bus, so I've had to cut my work hours back in order to get him an Uber back and forth to school because they said there is no bus stop for where we're placed at. If you would give me a call back and give you a little bit more insight on... All this suffering and the chaos at the top, it left me wondering, what can be done about this crisis in WHA and who should be in charge of doing it? To try and answer these questions, we dug into all kinds of options, from hiring a new and hopefully competent CEO to handing the authority over to the United States Housing and Urban Development Department, to the city taking control. Fixing the mold problem at WHA is an uphill battle at this point, but there are a few straightforward steps that can push towards progress. Paul D'Angelo worked for WHA for years. He currently works for Asheville's Public Housing Authority and will soon be CEO of an authority in Colorado. He said dealing with the mold crisis starts with getting a request for proposals out to remediation contractors in the area to quickly get families back into their homes. These are not difficult questions. You have to develop a plan of action with the ultimate goal of protecting your residents from a potential deadly situation. While remediation is ongoing in the currently vacant apartments, D'Angelo says the authority should develop a system for testing other apartments in the contaminated buildings. You know, again, you're looking for trends. If it was just concentrated in three units or three apartment complexes where a majority of the complaints were happening, I would either test every unit or make an announcement at one of their monthly meetings and put flyers under the door. The housing authority was caught off guard by the sheer volume of mold. But D'Angelo says using a system for tracking complaints could make it easier to find those problems. It would be as simple as keeping a spreadsheet, add each complaint as it comes in, organized by community and by building, and categorized by type of complaint. D'Angelo says that kind of tracking would prevent this buildup from happening in the future. These aren't difficult decisions. It's called doing the right thing, being an effective leader, uh, 
you know, caring about your residents, developing plans of actions, and figuring it out. But what if the authority doesn't have effective leadership? After all, most of the administrators left the authority over the summer. The remaining leadership in charge of the entire housing authority are the former head of HR and the executive assistant. The CFO, CEO, and chief development officer all left. One option on the table is fairly extreme. The Department of Housing and Urban Development takes over WHA. Mayor Bill Sappho suggested it as a good solution. If they need help from us, we would help them in any capacity that we can. I, I would also, you know, I would also lean heavily also on HUD because if, if they can't get it together, and I hope they can, and, 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 and I believe that it's a capable board, they've got their hands full right now, HUD could always step in here uh, from Greensboro. I believe Greensboro is, is the head office there, and if things got that out of hand or got that chaotic, HUD could come in here physically and take over that operation and get it back on its feet at some point in time. But, you know, that's always an option that's at HUD's disposal. William Rohe, a city and regional planning professor at UNC Chapel Hill, says that kind of takeover is called a receivership. It's a program meant to deal with housing authorities that fall out of compliance with their contracts. Housing authorities that have been in receivership have normally come out and uh, may not be perfect, but uh, much in much, much better situation. It would involve HUD hiring a consulting firm to take over operations of the housing authority, effectively supplanting the CEO. Since WHA doesn't currently have a CEO and hasn't even listed the job posting, it may be an easy transition. They're basically um, in, in control. So I don't know if they actually disband the board. I suspect they just kind of strip it of its uh, authority. But that option isn't perfect. In Wellston, Missouri, HUD kept control for more than two decades before closing up public housing there completely. And in New Orleans, they eventually gave back control. But it took 12 years, not the three or four years Rohe says is more common. There is another option, though, the route that Chapel Hill took. A number of years ago, our town manager was really frustrated by the underwhelming performance of the housing authority. So he said to the council, look, if you put the housing authority under me, i.e. make it a department of the city, I'll deal with the problem. I will straighten this out. And they did. The city would still receive HUD funding and it would have more direct control over the housing authority and could use its existing bureaucracy to deal with a lot of the day-to-day operations. And it would give Mayor Sappho more power than just appointing the WHA board. The city, the city, uh, uh, what, what, what role is the city playing in, in this? Because the city is appointing the people uh, on the board and, are, and who are they appointing? Are these people, uh, sometimes there's a lot of patronage that goes on here. The WHA board is still missing two members, though Mayor Sappho says he's on the lookout for qualified candidates, especially those with a financial background. The city's falling down really on its responsibility, and then the board is falling down on its responsibility. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's not uh, at all surprising. You've got a mess on your hands. Rohe says he hopes this kind of story doesn't reflect on public housing as a whole. A few bad apples in Wilmington don't spoil the bunch in Chapel Hill, after all. The vast majority of HUD public housing units were well-managed. They're decent housing. Uh, but the ones you hear about are the ones like you're talking about, 
the ones in Chicago where the cops wouldn't even go in. D'Angelo hopes things get better for the Wilmington Housing Authority. It's not entirely WHA's fault that the situation is this challenging, after all. HUD doesn't provide nearly enough funding to repair aging public housing, which makes crises like this more likely. The, the funding is insufficient, and they're clearly, obviously, whatever that data is, is a backlog. But with that, you've got to prioritize, you know, life and health emergencies, you know, versus another maintenance fix that, that maybe isn't as life-threatening like mold. But there are options to address some of the funding issues. The authority could look into the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, where public housing buildings are moved to a project-based voucher system. And by converting your public housing units to RAD units, you were solidifying the funding that was coming into your agencies for better upkeep. But that program was specifically to shift the budget in D.C. away from the public housing budget, which is the part of the budget that keeps getting shrunk, to project-based vouchers and um, the RAD program. Rohi says that program opens up the possibility of working with banks, which housing authorities can't really do otherwise. But ultimately, fixing the problems at WHA comes down to willpower and care, D'Angelo says. When you don't have leadership at the table, and, and what clearly seems like a lack of concern for your residents, this is the type of thing that happens. Terrible. So as we're pulling this show to a close, I have to say, questions do still remain unanswered, even after all of our reporting. And we'll definitely keep digging as the weeks and months go by. Right. Like, what's the actual cost? They told us it was $100,000 a month to put up all the displaced residents. But you did some basic back-of-the-napkin math with the numbers they gave us, and that seemed like a drastic underestimate. It really does. If WHA was only paying out the stipend to a family and not individuals, it would still be closer to $150,000 a month. Add on top of that rent. If we assume that every family is paying $50 a day, which is a pretty good deal. That's another $120,000 to $150,000. So conservatively, we're looking at two to three times what they told us, and that's assuming you can keep rent low and that more families don't get added to the list of people who've been displaced. Mm. Plus, there's the question of the remediation costs and the timeline. We've heard that there's an average of $27,000 per apartment to remediate, so that would be more than $2 million just for the apartments of the currently displaced residents. And I don't think that's the limit of the problem. We know a third of Hillcrest residents had mold problems a couple years ago, and we've already heard from residents there that they have severe mold problems now, along with other deferred maintenance. And the contractors. They still only have one contractor working on this problem who can't keep up. When will they hire others? We'll try to dig into the financial documents in the months to come. There's also a big question of blame. And what exactly has happened in the last two years? Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho says he lays the blame on WHA in general, both the board and the administration. But most of the administration is gone, and the board claims they didn't know about this until recently. Most of what we've learned from 2020 came from residents, not from WHA leadership. Since Katrina Redmond left, it's really hard to hold anyone accountable or fully confirm the extent to which WHA admins even knew about this problem. What did Katrina Redmond know and when did she know it? She won't tell us. She redirects our questions to current WHA leadership, and they either don't know or won't tell us. 
that issue will be particularly hard to untangle. And they still haven't told us how many people have already gotten back into their apartments, how many had to leave their apartments in the first place, or the total number of people in hotels right now. Yeah, they've only ever told us the number of families. We know at its peak there were 82 families displaced, but that's it. And those families range from one to five people each. So it's hard to say. I've been running with the assumption that the average number of people in a family is about two or three. Seems fair, but it would be more fair to actually report the real number, if only they'd tell us. Yeah. We'd also like to get into the original sin that led to these severe mold problems. It's hard to pinpoint, but multiple residents have suggested that bad remodeling jobs led to the water damage. That's what Sonia Moldrew said about her Creekwood apartment, and we've heard it elsewhere. That's right. A lot of these apartments got remodeled before Hurricane Florence in 2018, some with stucco on the outside that's now rife with mold. Without good record keeping, it's hard to definitively know. And maybe an auditor can figure it out down the line. I mean, it's pretty common for government bodies to hire the lowest bidder, but sometimes hiring the lowest bidder in the short term can actually have the highest cost in the long run. All right. Well, I think we need to leave it there for this edition of the Newsroom. Kelly Knoyer, thank you for all of your work. Thank you, Ben. I also want to thank the residents and their families who spoke with us for this show, Latorce Jones, Kimberly Lamberth, and Sonia Muldrew, plus the dozens of other residents who spoke to us off the record. Also thanks to my colleague Kevin Maurer and our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get the show as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, including more issues at the Wilmington Housing Authority, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. And I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. <laughs>